Good? Yep. Welcome to our first video Wednesday night class. It's a virtual class. If you've been looking on your Facebook or on YouTube, they have comment sections. If you'll write any questions or comments you have, we have a, a co-host, Doug, and he'll read that to me and I'll answer the best I can. So look for the comment section. We've got some comments. Casey Strasbog says, I have a hard time not being a fixer. When someone complains, I learn to be a fixer. But I have to learn to be a leader. But sometimes it's just too much. And it seems I've got, they've got a problem for every solution. It brings me down. Ann Burton says that Casey Strasbog, me too. And then my wife wrote, I'd rather not be around them. I can't handle it for long periods. So if you've got a comment about fixers and people who complain, let us hear it and we'll put it out and try to do our best to talk about it. Three years ago, in the middle of January, my Uncle Jack died. And we, I got a request to be the kind of, to say some things at the funeral. And so I went up, and as we were coming back, an ice storm hit the Philadelphia airport. And all flights stopped running. There was a long line right outside the southwest hostess as she was getting people who were hot and really, really on her case that they were not going to fly out that night. They even threatened her life if she couldn't get a plane for them to fly home like they were supposed to. The more I listened, the more I realized how their comments and their wishes and their out-of-control behavior wasn't logical. I don't want to be on a jet bowering down a runway that's icy. But she seemed to take it and repeat and give the people some place to go. And then I got up, and those of you who know me know I do things a little different sometimes. I said, I'm not going to yell at you. In fact, if you want to yell at me, you can yell at me and get it off your chest. And to my surprise, she did. It was about a four-minute yelling, and then she grinned at me and said, you know, that did feel good. And I said, I'm glad. She said, I'll call you when I can get you on a plane. She got the comfort in to come and get us, and we got a room paid for the night, courtesy of Southwest. And the next morning, we got a call early. So we went to the airport, and there we were, and our friend was there. And she said, uh, I'm going to get you on this flight. I said, well, don't go to too much trouble. She said, it was no trouble. She handed us two tickets 
that were what you would call of the upper society, the ones that you pay $30 more. Sue and I don't go by that because we figure the back of the plane lands as soon as the front of the plane does anyway, and so $30 is not worth a location in a plane. But we were the third ones through the door. And that wasn't supposed to be. And she smiled and said, next time you're in Philadelphia, look me up. For several weeks now, we've been looking at trials and tribulations. We've been looking at the complaining of Israel. We've been looking at the times that we go through suffering. And we complain that it shouldn't happen. So are there answers to why God allows suffering? It says in... James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word steadfastness is the word, if you go over to the NIV, it uses the word perseverance. But again, this is knowing that they test our faith so that we can endure it, whatever comes our way. Perseverance, when it finishes its work, leads us to mature and complete Christians not lacking anything. The easy to read version says it this way. My brothers and sisters, you'll have many kinds of trouble. But this gives you a reason to be very happy. You know when your faith is tested, you learn to be patient in suffering. And if you let that patience work in you, the end result will be good. You will be mature and complete and you'll be all that God wants you to be. Learn to endure suffering because it causes you to grow as a Christian. It's the thing that makes the difference even when the suffering is intense. In Peter, the suffering is intense. Christians are being attacked as cannibals because they don't understand that you give bread and it was called as flesh and you drink fruit of the vine and it was called as blood and they actually think you eat and drink real flesh and blood. So they're ostracized. They're run out. And they're not welcome in very many places and when they do get somewhere... People use them to take out their, their tiredness. So he writes, in this, rejoice. 
It seems funny that a, a people who are going through this, that everywhere they walk, if they're identified as Christians, they get the slander. They get tested by the talk. But if necessary, and you've been grieved by various trials, it tests the genuineness of your faith more precious than gold. And that precious, though it is tested by fire, may be result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I've got this on a couple others just to help some of the words. He tells us to greatly rejoice when we suffer grief no matter what kind of trial comes our way. These have come so that our faith is of greater worth than gold, even though refined by fire, that it's proved genuine and it results in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is raised. Though you not see him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you're filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And the easy reading version, I know that is exciting. The thought of that is exciting, even if you must suffer through different kinds of troubles for a short time now. These troubles test your faith. And they prove that it is pure. And such faith is worth more than gold. Gold that can be proved in, by fire and gold will ruin. When your faith is proven to be true, the result would be praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes. You've not seen him, but you still love him. You can't see him now, but... You believe in him. You're filled with wonderful and heavenly joy that cannot be explained. Your faith has a goal. And you're reaching that goal, your salvation. Now, I could have gone through Romans because Romans has a, a, a good session too. But how does that help us in our faith. How does that help us know that it's not for nothing? C.S. Lewis in his book, God on the Dock, is asked, is it true that Christians must be prepared to live a life of personal discomfort and self-sacrifice in order to qualify for the pie-in-the-sky promise? Some people believe that. But his answer is super. All people 
whether Christian or not, must be prepared to live a life of discomfort. It's possible to accept Christianity for the sake of finding comfort, but the Christian will lay himself open to the will of God to do what God wants him to do. You don't know in advance whether God is going to give you something difficult or painful or something that you'll quite like. And some people are of the heroic mold. Some are disappointed when it's doled out to them and it turns out to be something nice. But you must be prepared for unpleasant things and discomforts. I don't mean fasting and things like that. They're a different matter. But it's like when you're training soldiers in maneuvers. You practice with blank ammunition. Because you would like them to practice before meeting the real enemy. So we must practice in abstaining from pleasures which might not in themselves be wicked. But if you don't abstain from the pleasure, it'll be hard to be good when the time comes along. It really is a matter of practice. As I thought about that, I started thinking about my college days. I just blanked it. I was a member of a cross-country team for a year. That year was kind of upsetting in the beginning. We started running a mile around the track the first day. We did that for two weeks, and then it was 2.5 miles around the track. Then two weeks passed, and we got to five miles. And after we did five miles, the coach would call us after school and say, get in the panel truck, boys, and we'd get in the truck, and he'd drive 10 miles away from campus and say, anybody who gets there before everybody else can skip tomorrow. This was even before we started running for the season. But if we'd have waited until the season started in an eight-mile track to run, we'd have never made it. It was that testing of our faith. It was that trial of going through and running longer and longer to get us ready for the day of the meet. I have a claim, to flame, a claim to fame in my baseball career. John Matlock, who played for the New York Mets, I got on base twice in the same game. Now, what I don't tell you is the first time he hit me and the second time he walked me. But he was fast and he was good. We played three games a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You know what we did? on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, we practiced. We practiced our hitting. 
We practiced our feeling. We practiced ground balls. We practiced fly balls. We practiced hitting our cutoff man when it was a long drive into the outfield. We practiced stealing bases. And then we'd have a game, and we the next day would practice again. You asked why. It's the practice that makes the player. That's true of raising children. That's true of, of living every day. If you haven't used a star chart, it's, it's a good thing. Well, we have grandchildren. And our littlest one, Alex, has to set the table every night, and he gets a dollar at the end of the week. Now, the first couple of weeks, that was exciting. I think he's going to head for negotiations to get more than a dollar. His brother has harder things to do because he's older. He's nine. But they earn their money. Well, why? It makes them feel like part of the family. And it also lets them know there's no free lunch out there. Part of the problem with Israel was they constantly complained about trials before God. It was water. Then it was food. Then they didn't like the leadership of Moses and want to go back to Egypt. And they didn't like and they didn't like. When they finally get into the promised land, you think, after God had given them all that, they'd be thankful. One generation after they got into the promised land, they turned to Baal worship. Because they thought Baal worship would give them what they wanted. And for a while, it looked like it did. But it ended up in a captivity in Assyria and then a captivity in Babylon and God's people being scattered. Sometimes getting what we want doesn't lead to happiness. So next time that you're under trial, just let you know that God's practicing to make you something special. We have any questions? Thought we'd uh, go back to the original question. Um, how do you feel when you're around someone who constantly, constantly complains? We had a comment from Wanda Thornton, and she said she usually listens oh, when they complain. There you go. That's good. So we had good some uh, chime ins, some people just saying hi. Uh, of course, Wanda. We also had Mickey and Sandy and uh, Betty Larner and Angel Harvey all chimed in just to say hi. Great. We're glad you're here. We hope you come back next week. We'll see you then. Good night. <laughs>